Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, I've listened to Marin almost since day one. He's the best. Yeah. He's just the, he the is, gold standard. He is, although I feel like he's... Um, uh, I feel like he's gotten comfortable. And he kind of... Like, he essentially... The conversations all take the same road. Yes, they you do. Know, he's got, like, stock questions uh-huh. now. So what racket's your father in? <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the acting thing, uh, you know, like... And you can, it's not like it used to be. I guess because he's moving into acting now as well. Well, it's not just that, but like, uh, he's been, you know, he's been lauded so many times as the the, the godfather of the form mm-hmm. that I feel like he's just gotten a little comfortable. Like he's, the first couple of years, his podcast took a lot of chances and did different shit. Now it's the same basic same experience every time yeah um he used to do live podcasts with this uh, and he used to have these couple of regular comedians come down and he would have a panel whoever was on it and it could go anywhere and it was really fucking funny and he had uh these two guys that would do bits every time they would change every time but it was fucking hilarious and it was and he just it's been years since he's done that have you ever heard the joey coco diaz podcast no i am vaguely aware of who he is but no he's got some of the craziest fucking stories like he's one of those guys i think that was just running around like a wild man till he was probably about 40 like i think a lot of people get out their system young yeah and then straighten out you know mid-20s yeah 30s at the maybe latest but i wouldn't know anything about that (laughs) how long have you been you know off the 26 years. The sauce and everything else. 26. Wow. Yeah. I started drinking when I was five, though, so I didn't miss anything. I just did it earlier. Who, who introduced you to alcohol at that age? Probably was... my father, but not on purpose. Right. You know what I mean? When I was, um, when I was a little kid, uh, let's see, my, uh, my father was in the Marines, and he was, uh, he was a higher rank. He was some sort of sergeant. And, um, and on the weekends, you know, it it was a pretty fucking buttoned up military household. Like I had to be up at a certain time, even as a little kid, I had to have my bed made before I left the house, corporal punishment, all that shit. But on the weekends, uh, all my dad's like under 
the 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 Marines underneath him, like you know his 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 troop or whatever. They come filing through the door with you know six packs and you know uh, bottles of whiskey or whatever in their casual clothes and like they they would bring over stacks of vinyl, and you know like um, the bong would come out from behind the couch because my dad could throw down, but it was either business time or it was you know uh, or it was time to fucking cut loose, and uh, you know it's. It's funny, I'm really sort of uh, grateful because my dad was, you know, obviously he's a white dude uh, and he came from a really conservative background, but he, it, it was, ironically, it was important to him to teach me, and this is in the 70s, mind you, uh, about racism, about homophobia even. Um, I remember I was uh, riding somewhere uh, in the back seat, and my dad was driving, and in the passenger seat uh, was a, another Marine, and they were both in uniform, but they had a stack of records, and on on top was Rod Stewart, Footloose and Fancy Free. And uh, the, his friend, or whoever, uh, in sitting in the passenger seat said, yeah, he sure does look like a fag, doesn't he? And they both laughed, and I asked my dad, five, six years old, seven years old me, dad, what's a fag? And he says, oh. And his answer was so fucking diplomatic considering who he was and the times he said you know how i sleep uh in bed with with your mom and i said yeah and he says well some men would actually do that but they just do it with other men and some women do it with other women and that was it that was his whole answer there was no judgment on it anything and it's really fucking amazing to me that he was that prescient you know what i mean but as far as the drinking thing was concerned, uh, you know, he'd have these parties and everybody would come over, the neighbors would come over, everybody, I think, I'm sure my dad was, I know my dad was cheating on my mom with all the neighbor ladies, but, you know, they'd all give, you know, my, my father's name was Dan and, you know, he was the, he was the, you know, commanding officer. So everybody thought it was funny to give Dan, Danny's boy, a sip off their beer. What they didn't realize was that everybody in the party thought the same thing. Right. So I'd be getting fucked up. And I, and I clearly remember at that early age processing, this is, I like how this feels, and I know where it came from. And it, it was not long before, you know, I would get up early Saturday mornings to watch cartoons before anybody else in the house was up. And I used to go and sneak beer, you know, by myself. So, yeah, so that, that set it off early, you know. Did you realize early on that you had an addictive personality? No. No? No. What do you think it is about that side of the, the psyche that, you know, affects people differently? And what do you mean? It kind of, where's the line between excessive an addict drinking and... Not an and addict? Oh, oh uh, it, well, uh, the, the difference between a problem drinker and an alcoholic for example, uh, fuck. Because that's the struggle, right? Is when you, it's when you, you realize that when what you, to do. I've known bad drunks. I mean, bad fucking drunks. Where you think alcoholic, hundred percent, no question. Dude's got a problem. It's a problem, and gets into a car accident, has a kid, uh, has a health scare, and they're good to go. They're done. They're just okay had my fun with it it's a new chapter in my life and it's that simple and occasionally they can go and have a drink for an alcoholic or an addict that's not a fucking option you know what i mean like i uh i've been off of booze and drugs for a long time but i grapple with smoking still me too and for me it's been eight or nine months now again i quit all the time i've quit for five years two years whatever I've been off for nine months. Um, but the last time I started smoking again, it was New Year's Eve. I was at a party at some club, and all my friends were going outside to the smoking area. So, and I wasn't smoking, but I was following them out there, and they were drinking, and they were you know, doing a bump or whatever. And, and I'm like, I, I'm not so 
bored that I'm going to fucking throw away my sobriety because it's New Year's Eve, but I can have a fucking cigarette. I can have a cigarette. Come on. You know, two days later, I'm buying a pack, and then it's off and running. And when I don't smoke, I get up first thing in the morning, I have breakfast, and I hit the gym, and I take pretty good care of myself. When I'm smoking, first thing is coffee and a cigarette, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't give a fuck. I, so I'm very extreme one way or the other. You know what I mean? I'm very much like that. I had, I think, three months off alcohol a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and then the first drink that I had was a Jager bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, right, cigarettes, beer, cocaine, and it was like within three hours, it was like it was all back on the table. Yeah. And so There are some people, though, and I want to be clear about this, uh, for anybody that might be listening that are lying to themselves, there are things such as a periodic alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, somebody that used to be in this band. Uh, his alcoholism got him fired. But he would also go a month or two without drinking. And he would say, I'm not an alcoholic. I've gone 28 days without a drink. And I said, do you know who counts how many days they haven't had a drink? An alcoholic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if you don't have a problem, you're not really fucking thinking about it. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's there. The line is not so clear cut. Do you know what I mean? Does it get easier the longer you go without? No. No? Does it get harder? In my, or is it just in my kinda... secret society, in my secret groups that I go to, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's believed that it's a daily, daily maintenance of your headspace. You know what I mean? Because um, it's real easy to, to, to isolate and to not check in with people and to like just fucking start building up that anger and 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 that anger quickly turns into depression and you know that that gets you into fucking trouble so i you have to you have to keep your fucking head you know and that means a lot of different things for different people but what what i find it means primarily for me is do no wrong and Keep your fucking side of the street clean. You know what I mean? Uh, Don't talk a lot of shit. Um, And if you fuck something up or if you fuck somebody over, fix it as quickly as you can. And then that keeps your head kind of clean. You know what I mean? Because it's when you start holding on to that nasty shit that, like, it festers. And then you start feeling bad about yourself. And then you get fucking angry and you know uh, resentment can kill you it really can so do the tools that you learn in mm-hmm. the you know the work that you do yeah do you apply them to day-to-day life and you do have they actually to. really improve your life have you found that that you're a hundred fucking for percent um i am back in goldfinger because of that very thing and john and i were talking about that the other day i uh there is like i said you try to keep your shit together on a daily basis but things do accumulate and it does happen so it helps to like sort of once a year once every couple years whenever you sort of like really i do it by writing the shit down you kind of take stock of how you feel and where you're fucking at and you really call bullshit on yourself and because when you've got it written down in black and white in front of you you can't it's the fucking truth it's just between you and that piece of paper. Do you know what I mean? And you're not, you're doing it for yourself. And when you really see where you're at and you hold yourself accountable, it makes it really easy for you to see what you've got to fix. Okay? Um, I know that sounds kind of vague, um, but I had just done that literally had just done that and so i was kind of walking around going oh shit i i know where you know fires i need to put out and john had john and i hadn't spoken in five years that's how long it had been yeah and he just i swear to god out of nowhere right around that time text me hey you want to get coffee and my instant thought was yeah yeah you're my fucking brother i've known you for 30 years i will of course i'll get coffee with you and we met, got coffee, and we had a long talk, and it was, you know, it was, it was really good. You know, I think it was really, we aired a lot of shit, you know, a lot of the reasons that we hadn't been talking and everything. And, like, 
In addition to both being sober, we're also both fucking middle-aged men. And, you know... You can take ownership you can of embrace, your mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. You can embrace that and act your fucking age. You know what I mean? And I'm sitting across from the table from somebody who... I've, I've had many, many, many differences over, with over the years. But I know, at our core, we both care about each other. You know what I mean? So... You know, dude, I've screamed at him. I've gone flying over tables at him. I have said fucking unholy shit to that dude and vice versa in the heat of the moment. But when you're calm and that's more, you know, there's no fucking static and no, you know, bullshit, then it's easy. It's easier to, to, to be honest with somebody about that kind of thing, you know. So how is it being back in the band and playing those songs again and playing with John? We're and- both crazy people. Mm-hmm. So we ha- we've, you know, we've had a couple of days on this tour in particular where it's like, I'm just going to walk out of the room <laughs> or he'll just walk out of the room and we leave each other alone and then we're good. You know what I mean? Or we say whatever we have to say. You know what I mean? So it's been fucking great, to be honest with you. Um, uh, playing the new songs, it, that last record I had nothing to do with. I didn't play on it, didn't write anything. You know, when John first asked me to come back and play, I, I was thinking about that. And then, and I was thinking, nah, fuck that, man. Like, I'm the original guitar player. I'm an original fucking member. I ain't playing this shit. But if Slash can get up and play that shit off of Chinese democracy, right? who am I? <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, I dig the new songs. And they're really fun to play live. So, yeah, fuck it. And how is it the dynamic with the other guys? Because obviously, I guess awesome. John and them have been playing for a while. Awesome. And... Is it difficult? Does it take a couple of shows to get into the groove with them? Or are you kind of um, straight in there? It, it did. You know what I mean? Especially with Phil because he's playing guitar. And when I was gone, he was the lead guitar player. So when I first came back, I said, well, the first thing I did, I came and I did one show as like a special guest. And then John asked me, do you want to play this? Do you want to play that? And so I'm like, oh, shit, this is actually going to become a thing. So I called Phil. And I said, hey, John's asked me to play these shows. I built this house with him. And I'm not going to move back in and live in the fucking garage. I'm the fucking lead guitar player in this band. But Phil is a fucking incredible person. He's a great dude. He, and he's a great musician. And I said, I need my side of the stage back. And I'm playing my fucking parts. You know, essentially, he's going from being Angus to Malcolm. You know what I mean? And I said, but, I, but I'm telling you right now, I haven't told John anything. I haven't given him a decision yet. If you're not okay with this, because this has been his gig for the last three or four years, I said, if you're not okay with this, then I'm just not going to do it. But if I'm going to come back, I have to do it on my terms. And he was like, yeah. Dude, fuck yeah. He, so everybody has been so fucking cool about it that, yeah, it's been easy. Do you know what I mean? It's a pretty, uh, like, supergroup kind of tour yeah. de force lineup now it as well, isn't it? It is. And <laughs> I think it's only because Phil and Mike and Cyrus are such fucking great musicians, and they also have names. They've also they've got their own swag. That That's the only thing that could replace the original members. Do you know what I mean? Um, Just making it their own. Yeah, like, when you go see these these. Re, these you know, like the fucking uh, the angelic upstarts or those. It's like the original bass player and no, and a bunch of guys you've never heard of. Nobody wants to see that. Do you know what I mean? Like if I go see the Damned and it's just Dave Vanian, I don't give a shit. But because everybody in this band has their own identity, it really makes it. I think the audience doesn't feel cheated. No, not you know at I mean? all. Yeah. If anything, you and they're get fucking a- great players, and they're fucking great dudes to tour with, because we don't have twenty-five years of like tension and ugly fucking shit built up. Everybody gets along better than ever, you know. I want to ask you about the um, Queen bitch shows that yes. you do, uh-huh. um, because for me, there's something more punk rock than punk rock about drag acts. If there was like- not a drag scene, if there was not gay people, there would be no punk rock. I mean, period. If you, especially in LA, you know, if you look at uh, where CBGB's was in the Bowery. Should we, John, are you going to do it in here? Yeah. We'll go through the dressing room just there. Sure. Yeah, so then there won't be background noise. Sorry, no, no, it's all good. No, no, it is. It's a shoebox, but it'll be big enough for us. Let me take that mic off you. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll have a 
Rocky Balboa sound effects in the background. <laughs> Do you want me to grab the chairs or you want to sit on this? Uh, let's get the chairs. Yep. My back is not great. Right. Oh, perfect. There we go. So uh, we'll pick it up from drag. Yeah. The punk fucking rock community. You can teach the punk rock community a thing or two, right? I don't there know. we go. Yeah. We'll... If it matters. In fact, no, you were on one. You were okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How, how did that all start? Um, well, I mean, if you go way back, because uh, I think what you said is important and I don't want to leave that stone unturned, you know, in LA, oh, the Hollywood punk scene, you know, came like Alice Bag and X and all those things. They, you know, fucking Darby was gay. Um, uh, the gay community was sort of welcoming to these kids because they were fucking outcast kids. And, you know, I mean, punk rock later developed this sort of testosterone macho fucking thing, but that's not what it was about in the beginning. In England, in New York, in LA, yeah, it man, was Wayne about County. misfits. Yeah. It was about kids that got, that didn't belong anywhere and they got fucking picked on and they were fucking weirdos. And that there is a spiritual connection with, you know, the gay community. Um, and you know, if you look at like the old, um, squeeze box in new york and all, all, all those things you know it really punk rock and the and and drag have have ha have a long history together um uh so what was your first exposure to drag do you remember and do you remember being like enthralled and excited and enticed by it yeah and scared a little bit um i was i was living in west hollywood i was sort of a street kid i was about 17 or 18 and just kind of living wherever and i used to go into gay bars in boys town because i used to get hit on well first of all nobody i never got carded so i go on go in there and i get hit on and they would buy me drinks for free so i'd go hang out at a gay bar for an hour get fucked up for free and then walk up to the sunset strip and go hang out at the clubs um which i mean that's sort of you know, uh, duplicitous and taking advantage of people, but you know, it was, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic and it was free fucking alcohol. But, um, and yeah, you would go, you know, there, there's a lot of drag performers in that scene, but the, the way I got involved with playing with, uh, with, 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 with a lot of those people was there was a club in LA in 99, 2000, 2001 called club makeup. And it was sort of, it was built out of the ashes of the old New York club squeeze box. You're familiar with Hedwig and the Angry Inch? Yes. Okay. H Hedwig was born at squeeze box. Wow. Okay. The guy who wrote that film and those songs used to be a drag performer at squeeze box. And, you know, they used to get up originally and do covers, but over time he started like bringing his own songs in and those were would later become the soundtrack to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and he developed them over time with the house band at Squeezebox. Well, then uh, some promoters in L.A., in, including Joseph Brooks, who used to be the DJ at the old Cat House. I don't know if you're familiar with this. but The Ricky Rackman Club, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the club where uh, Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat and that whole scene uh, came out of what a lot of people don't know was it wasn't like this metal glam thing. It was to an extent, but it was also like uh, Susie and the Banshees and Gene Loves Jezebel. And it was also had this uh, like Christian goth death. Kind of stuff. Yes. Because yeah. um, that club was, okay, I don't know if you want a full fucking punk uh, rock dude, history it's, lesson. It's fascinating to me. Like LA cultural history as a, a whole is fascinating to me. Right. So. And I'm born and raised there and I fucking love my city. It's my identity. It's why I have you bring us on to California Love every night. You know what I mean? Um, I could go on forever about, you know, we just touched on for a second Death Row Records and Crips and Bloods and that whole thing. I am just as connected to that as I am with the drag, drag scene and the metal kids and the whatever. L.A. is, to me, the greatest city in the world. But I digress. There used to be a punk rock record store on Melrose called Vinyl Fetish. Yeah. Started by this guy, Joseph Brooks. Uh, and 
Izzy from Guns N' Roses used to hang out in front of it all the time and just smoke cigarettes. And he'd come in, they didn't have any money, so he'd go through the records, look at them. You know, whatever, Joseph Vent finally gave him a job. And then Izzy got into a band. He's like, you got to check out my band. And that was Guns N' Roses. And so Joseph was an early uh, adopter of that band. Like, he put their flyers up and, like, he helped them out. And then later, the guy Ricky started the Cat House with Tammy from Faster Pussycat. And they tapped Joseph to be their DJ. Was this very much the scene that Jane's Addiction came out of as well? Yes. Before it kind of split? Yes. Okay, so I try to explain to people what Hollywood in the 80s was like because occasionally the Red Hot Chili Peppers will come up in a conversation and people will shit on them. And I, to an extent, I agree. I don't like anything. I'm not a fan of anything they've done in the last 20 years. However, when I was 15, 16, 17, Hollywood was Guns N' Roses, Jane's Addiction, Fishbone, the Chili Peppers, you know what I mean? Thelonious Monster, Faster Pussycat, like all of these bands that seem so different on paper. Guns N' Roses would open for the Circle Jerks. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, at the core of everything was punk rock. Yeah. You know what I mean? I could go on for hours about that shit. It's but so anyway, so, so Joseph, no was the, Joseph was the DJ at the Cat House. And later on, he teamed up with this other guy, and uh, they started this club called Club Makeup at the El Rey. And... What it was was essentially like this sort of drag queen, glam rock, punk rock, disco, dance club. If all those things make sense to you together, then you fit in at club makeup. And it was primarily a dance club. But it was fucking LA's answer to Studio 54 for a while. Like People would come in these crazy fucking costumes or like decked out in very formal like they're going to the Oscars attire or street punks would come in there half naked and everybody... Everybody belonged. And people were like, you'd walk into the bathroom and people would literally be fucking on the floor or whatever. You know, I mean, it was anything went. Just decadent as hell, right? Yeah. And at midnight, every at every club at midnight, uh, this group of musicians would take the stage and we would back up these famous drag queens from all over the world. We would fly them in, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, Wayne Jane County and and uh, the voluptuous horrors of Karen Black and you know they'd come up and they'd do and we'd have theme nights and like they did you w- ever encounter Divine? No, no, no. I think she was in poor health by the time that was happening, so she wasn't traveling a lot. But and we would play these crazy fucking shows with like you know and it was it was really amazing. And then, um, and that lasted for three years. And then E, this the, this cable network in America, uh, I think where the Kardashians got their start, uh, came and they did a special on Club Makeup one night. And that was the end of it. Right. Because just then just all mainstream. of a sudden, all the, the, you know. Infiltration. Like yeah, all these people from like Orange County and like, like looky-loos, like normal people. They're like, oh, let's go check out the freaks in Hollywood. And that was beginning of the end of the club. You know what I mean? It sucked. So it lasted three years and it was a lot of fun. And, um, and then uh, several years later, uh, do you know this band Passion Pit? No, never heard of them. They're an indie band, and they're pretty fucking big in the States. And they were coming through town, and they had sold out a couple of really big shows. And they called the promoter, and they said, we're already sold out, so we don't need any help with tickets, but we'd like a really fun cover band to open for us. Well, the promoter happened to have been a huge fan of Club Makeup. And he called us, and he said, is there any chance you could put the Club Makeup band back together to open these big shows for this band? And we were like, no, there's no way. It'll never happen. Because dry queens are out of their fucking minds. And you know you can't find them. It's like to herding yeah. feral kittens. <laughs> and then... So I hung up the phone. And then an hour later, I thought, what the fuck? I'll try. So I sent out a few texts. I got pretty quick responses. And then more. And then more. And I'm like, fuck it. All right. So I hit him back. And I said, we're going to do it. We couldn't call it the Club Makeup Band because it wasn't Club Makeup and we didn't own that name anyway. So I just came up with this name. At the time, it was Transcontinental. (laughs) And so we started playing shows. And those shows were so much fun. It was such a success that we took the band out of the club and we just the band became its own thing. And then that carried on for years. 
and we had people who become quite famous drag queens now. And it was always an all-star band. It was always like touring musicians. Whoever was in town would come and play. And uh, and then that, we were headed for a record deal. We were headed for our own reality show on RuPaul's Network and all this shit. But like I said, uh, queens are volatile personalities. And, you know, they, they uh, my experience at least, has been the people I was playing with would cut off their nose to spite their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it... It it fell apart. And Have you was, got any choice anecdotes from total top okay. draw insanity? Behavior? Okay, I'll tell you this: the last show Transcontinental ever played together, we had been tapped to headline the West Hollywood Halloween Carnival. Now, if you know anything about this, it's fucking massive. Two hundred thousand people. All of what we call Boys Town. It's a it's a it's a strip of Santa Monica Boulevard where all the gay clubs and everything shuts down. And uh, and it just becomes like a huge, like a carnival, literally. And there are a couple of stages set up. Well, we had been tapped to headline the main stage. And they had built this amazing stage. I mean, it was fucking Las Vegas. It was huge. And they had paid us a ridiculous amount of money. The thing was put on by the city. It was a big fucking deal. The band was tight. We were ready to go. And we're halfway through our set. And, you know, our queen's... Again, being punk as fuck, they're up there. They're saying whatever they want to say, and I love it. And they're, you know, they're Darby, they're Stiv Baders, they're fucking Gigi Allen. They're doing their fucking thing, and I think it's awesome. But at one point, the 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 lady who had essentially hired us pulls me over to the side of the stage, and she's like, "The see, look over there." And I looked over to the other side of the stage, and she goes, "That's the mayor and his children. This is a this is a supposed to be a family event put on by the city." And I was like, fuck. So I pulled a couple of the main queens aside and I said, hey, look, I showed them the mayor and I said, if you guys can cool it with the uh, cocksucker AIDS faggot shit, you know, that you're saying, please. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Cool. So we play the next song. I'm thinking, all right, cool. This is going to be good. This one particular drag queen who I'm sure you know, I'm sure you've heard of, but I but will remain nameless. Uh, we finished the song and she's like, oh my God, that fucking sucked my cock, you fucking faggot. It was so bad, I think I just got AIDS. And I was just like, I was just like, fuck. And that was effectively the end of Transcontinental. I was so fucking furious that I was just like, I don't want to play with these children anymore. I'm not doing this. And that was, you know, we've since made peace. Like, you know, I've run into people. We've actually done a couple of shows here and there. And and that was what that was. So there is a promoter with an art gallery in L.A. called Lethal Amounts. And, um, and uh, he reached out to me last year and said, is Transcontinental still a thing? And I said, no. He goes, I've got this idea. You want to do it and I had missed it you know what I mean because I wasn't in Goldfinger I hadn't been playing for a while so I said let me think about it and I reached out to all the original trans K drag queens because this was it was going to be in a smaller club it was lower stakes it was going to be for much more fun the problem is they've all gone on to become pretty famous in their world they're all pretty successful they weren't going to come for a hundred bucks and like rock the L Cid in Silver Lake you yeah. know what I mean but they were all cool about it. They're like, dude, I'm just too fucking busy. And I'm like, but, you know, whatever. But it, it was good. So I had to go. I had to start going to drag shows and finding new queens. And so that's what Queen Bitch was. Um, and then I, everybody sort of got busy with other projects and stuff, so we couldn't do it. But uh, it's funny. The promoter hit me up right before I left on this tour and said, do you want to do some shows in January? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to be... I'm free. So Queen Bitch is going to start happening in January again. I've got to see it. If I'm out in LA next yeah. year, yeah. I've got to check it out, man. Yeah. It sounds incredible. It's exactly my style of humor as well as music yes. and, and performance. And, you know, I mean, you were saying earlier you were, you were pissed at them because of the way they'd behave, but it's almost like that thing, it's isn't it? It's great on stage. It's, it's, no, way it's handle, <laughs> no way to handle business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Are you a doorman as well, Charlie? Are you still doing that? No. Have you got any crazy tales from those? I mean, just a lot of fights. Yeah. Um, and I, and I will give one word, uh, I'll give a bit of advice to, to anybody that attends a bar on a regular basis or bars. Don't talk to the door guy because invariably there's about three or four jokes that everybody feels compelled to make to door guys. Like to taxi drivers, same sort of thing. Yeah. Isn't it? We've heard them and we've heard them better and we've heard them a thousand fucking times and just shut the fuck up. Um, no jokes about how you forgot your ID. No jokes about, oh, I'm legal, but she's 18. Don't let her in. Because you know what? I fucking won't. All right. You heard him. You're 18. You're not coming in. Um, just shit like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's Everybody's a smart ass and everybody tells the same fucking jokes. And, you know, so, yeah. It's alcohol, isn't it? It makes everyone think they're a comedian. This is at the beginning of the night. This is when they're just showing up. <laughs> I think there is an intimidation factor when you're coming to a door guy. And you know, maybe you're trying to break the tension or something. There's no fucking tension. Show your fucking ID, say hello, and move on. You know what I mean? So I actually wrote an entire article about it for the LA Weekly. Did you do regular columns? I saw you did like a big one on the Lakers. On, yeah, I wrote a thing about LeBron James coming to Los Angeles. See, writing is a thing that I, it's one of my side sort of interests. I've always written. Did you go to school or college to do journalism no. or anything like that? No. It's just something you've always but cultivated. I'm going to... Uh, I do have a degree in uh, political science, and I've not used it for anything at all. So, uh, but I, th I think I'm going to go back to school uh, in the winter for screenwriting because I've written three pilots. Uh, so, and it's just, it's, I love doing it, you know, and you can do that anywhere. You can literally write on your phone. So, yeah. And obviously, maybe write some parts for yourself, like a kind of Billy Bob Thornton style, right? Sure. Swing. Yeah, I've definitely swing done blade. my share of acting as well, yeah. Well, weren't you in a, um, a movie directed by, um, is it Toby Hooper? Did yes. They, yeah? Yeah. What was he like to work with, man? Well, he, uh, rest in peace. Um, he was fucking awesome. Um, Anyone who doesn't know, he obviously did. Text Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist. Yeah. Horror legend. Yeah, horror legend. For sure. Um, my part originally was supposed to be for Glenn Danzig. Wow. But apparently he just couldn't act. Like, <laughs> apparently he was, from what I'm told, he was so bad that it wasn't even like, it doesn't matter, it's Glenn Danzig. It, he couldn't remember a lot, like nothing. So they held auditions and I got it. He was awesome because I, I'm not... At the time, this was a long time ago, it was like 12, 13 years ago, I wasn't very experienced. And, uh, you know, I had this one scene with a lot of dialogue, and, and he just pulled me aside and he said, 
you know, we shot a couple of takes and he pulled me aside and he essentially said, forget about acting. Have this, have this conversation with this woman as you. And that was it. Um, and he also did this thing that made me feel much more comfortable after we shot that scene we did we kept trying to get that scene and it just wasn't working out after he told me that and I just went in there and I just talked to this woman as though and uh, so we had a on days after that he came to me and he said you know uh, some of these actors are having a hard time and you are such a natural now he could have been fucking blown you know full of shit but he was calculated and he said you're such a natural I would love it if you could practice their scenes with them so they can kind of relax a little bit and maybe get some of what you have I didn't have anything but what he was doing that to make me feel good and to make me feel comfortable in front of the camera because I'm like oh shit if I have to help these people I'm not thinking about my performance I'm thinking about theirs and it's a trick because the 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 thing about acting is listening to, when you're on camera and you've got a head full of all these lines that you memorized a and lot where of, I stand and where the camera's yes. going to be and all that it's a lot of times you you're just moment, in your head it? and you're thinking you're waiting to say the next thing that you memorized you're not actually having the moment you're not actually listening to the other actor so if I'm in that scene thinking I'm here to be of service and to help them then I actually have to fucking listen to them you know what I mean? So, yeah, he was amazing. He really understood actors, and he really helped me. Do you train? Do you go to acting classes? No. No? You just sort of learn on the job, and often that's the best way, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I did wind up... I did go to one class for a little bit. Ironically, the class was held in the building that used to be uh, a storage space that is where Guns N' Roses lived and rehearsed. Oh, wow. On Sunset and Gardner, right next to the Guitar Center. There is this bank of like, it's like a restaurant and an acting studio and, some, and a little theater. Well, that used to just be a, st- a huge uh, storage spaces. And Guns N' Roses all lived in there with their gear and they rehearsed and whatever. And it was in that same fucking room where this acting class took place. So everything's full circle. It's just one of those cities, isn't it? I've been there three times for quite lengthy periods of time. Mm-hmm. And it's just, if you like movies and music, which I do, like that's my life, then yeah. you're just surrounded by history and heritage yes. and magic. And Yeah. Um, and the one thing that I learned from that class was um, take the lines that are on the paper. For example, if you're if you're if if your scene is you're walking into a fucking liquor store and you're asking the guy for a pack of smokes and a bottle of fucking stoli, okay? What do you really mean? Do you know what I mean? Okay, for example, when you asked me to do this podcast, your words were, "Hey, do you got a minute to do this podcast?" What you meant was, um, "This podcast is important to me. Um, I think." I think that you might make an interesting conversation. Um, uh, maybe on some level, I, you know, uh, uh, this will open the doors to other musicians because if I talk to Charlie, then this person will talk to me. You know, maybe, you know, uh, God, I hope this interview doesn't suck. There's all this shit. Everything we say to everybody at all times ha- is loaded. Right. So. So if you're like, give me a pack of fucking reds and a bottle of Stoli, what you mean is, I'm so f- it's so fucking hot in here. Why don't they turn on the fucking air conditioning? I can't believe cigarettes are fucking twelve bucks a pack. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's all this other shit, and you have to, you have to say all of those things with this one line. Do you know what I mean? So you have to respect your character. That your character is having a day. Your character's having a fucking experience. Do you know what I mean? And that makes it that much more real. That was the only thing I've ever gotten out of any acting class, but it's helped. So, yeah. Does the stuff that you do with the sobriety side of things, does that all feed into the the way you approach acting and the kind of the meat that you can get into? It in does. scenarios and, as you say, motives and it thought does processes? It does in the sense that it helps you to be more sympathetic to everybody else on set. Uh, you're more sympathetic to your fellow actors because they want to look good. They want to do a good job. They've got their fucking insecurities. And if you recognize that and you help, 
it helps everybody. The fucking crew guy that's been there for six hours before you showed up setting up lights or moving shit. Do you know what I mean? The better you do your job, the faster you do the job, the quicker he gets to go home to his kids. So it makes you more sympathetic, I think. You know what I mean? And how does it apply to your love life, dare I ask? Are you in a relationship? Are you Currently, yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And does it allow you to be a better partner? Yeah, but that that was, I would say, the slowest growth and progress in my life. Um, before I stayed, started dating this girl, I told her, I, I, I love hanging out with you. Uh, I'm attracted to you. Blah, blah, blah. All the shit you say. I said, but I do not want a fucking girlfriend because... I'm bad at relationships. I have a I have a fucking broken picker. And if I'm attracted to you, that must mean you're crazy. Because that your type? I don't know what's good for me. Yeah. And if I want you to be in my life, then clearly there's something fucked up with you. And so far, so good. You know what I mean? Um, and she has... I feel that like... She is a reflection of my growth in that area because she's not crazy. And we actually have a healthy relationship. And it's been fucking a lot of fun. Do you know what I mean? Um, if, it w- if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been started playing with Goldfinger again. Uh, I wouldn't have quit smoking. Like, she's just been a fucking rock. When I'm out of my fucking mind and I'm losing it, she just looks at me like I'm a fucking idiot. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> she allows you to see the absurdity sometimes rather yes. than get wrapped up in 100% it. a hundred fucking percent. Yeah, for sure. Good for you, man. Yeah, so. And uh, Mo tells me you're a big dog lover. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I saw there was this beautiful, very short documentary that was made about how good pets and in particular dogs can be for people with depression, Mm -hmm. homeless people. Yeah. Like they're just, I think, one of these kind of rocks that, you know, perhaps a human can't give you because it's unconditional love. Yes. Um, How many dogs have you got? Currently four. Four. Yeah. And has it always been that you've been a dog lover? Yeah, my my family is like that. Um, Yeah. when I was growing up, uh, we lived in these, when I was like 10, 11, we lived in these really shitty apartments in the valley. I don't know if you're, for those unfamiliar, we lived in a, a area called Canoga Park and it's uh, not good. And uh, Is that kind of like the porn area of LA? It's close to it, but my neighborhood was more gangs and shit. And right. I'm not saying this to sound like a thug or tough or I fucking come from the streets, but it just was what it was. I had a single mother. She wasn't making much money. That's where we lived. And um, there was always stray dogs, always. And, you know, we just sort of started taking them in, you know. And then my mom married my stepfather, and, you know, we you know, moved up in the world a little bit and we moved into a house and then it was fucking all bets are off. Just any, any stray (laughs) dog, cat, fucking whatever. You know, my family has always been like that with animals. And, um, I don't, I'm not religious by any means. I don't know if I, I certainly don't believe in a classical conception of God, but I do believe that there is some sort of, uh, there's, there's something that we don't understand. And I think that if there are truly such things as angels, that they're animals. And they are a perfect expression of, of like you said, unconditional love and purity. Um, and that's why uh, people that abuse animals, I think, need to be burned alive. Burned alive with no fucking mercy. Um, and I have gotten in many, many fights, especially in downtown L.A., uh, over the way people treat their fucking dogs. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Are you a walker? Because not many people walk in LA, do they? Oh, yeah. Obviously, I, I love walk to walk. Dogs, yeah. I love to walk. I do too. I think you get kind of looks like, are you a prostitute? Like, what's going mm. on? Because people look at you weird, don't they? Like, mm. you know, I mean. Not really. No? Mm. Maybe I think it's it just depends on where you are. My neighborhood now, um, I have a house, which in LA is not common. Most people live in apartments, but I have a house, but it's not in the best area. So there's a lot of people walking, a lot of people on bikes. And then um, I spend most of my time downtown and everybody's walking. But like, yeah, if you're walking in Beverly Hills or in Hollywood or something like that, it's a little odd. I want to ask you about Black President before we wrap. Yes. Um, how did that, was it a similar sort of story to the drag queen stuff? Was it just like musicians when they were in town off Kinda, tour? Yeah, actually, we um, had put together a cover band called Shithead just for fun. And... Um, and, uh, you know, I think I had been in a situation, 
Oh, there was like uh, there's this place in Hollywood called the Cat Club, and uh, the guy who later uh, went on to become the bass player in Black President, he and I were just there hanging out, and a friend of ours was performing, and she wanted to do, and it was a casual jam type thing with an audience, and she wanted to do a Blondie song, and her band didn't know it, and she looked at me and she's like come on, Charlie, you fucking know this song. I'm like, yeah, I'll get up and play it. Didn't have a bass player. He got up and played it. And uh, and then we wound up doing like four or five songs. And it was so much fun playing all these old classic like New York punk rock songs that I started thinking, God, I want to do that. So I hit up Roy and I hit up a couple other people. And I knew Christian could sing his fucking face off. So I said, let's, you know, let's get up and do a bunch of dead boys and bad brains and dead Kennedys and shit like that. And so that was shithead. And, um, and then, so we were doing shithead gigs like once a month, you know, again, whoever, when, when we were all in town, it was for fun. And then what happened in the middle of that was Bush beat Al Gore and I was fucking furious and I wrote a song. I wrote the song Last Fucking Hope, which is the, went on to become the first song on that record. And Shithead had a gig, and I came into the Shithead practice, and I said, hey, I should wrote a song, because we were doing all covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And With I no said, intention of being an original song. Yeah. yeah. And p- people would say to us all the time, you guys are the best band in L.A., you should fucking do, you know. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's easy to play these songs. You know, if you're getting up and playing fucking Iron Fist, Lemmy did the hard part. He fucking wrote the song. Yep. You know, You're drawing from an arsenal of hits that exactly, that prove exactly. That they're great. Um, playing playing those songs is one thing; writing them is a whole other thing. But I had written this fucking song, and I said, and everybody's like, "This is fucking cool." And then you know, seeing the way the country reacted to Bush's reelection, more songs just started coming, and I just started writing and writing and writing, and and I said, "Do you guys want to do this? Do you want to like?" make a record be a band and um you know and again everybody we could only do it part-time because everybody was touring you know people were starting to have kids and so from and it's never going to be the number one priority exactly. for a lot of people because they've got you know these exactly big bands that so in, yeah. it took us between me writing that first song and us getting a record out uh it took us about three years so we have this band called Black President, and we're about to put a record out. And then there's this like young political hotshot coming out of Chicago named Barack Obama. I knew who he was because, again, I've got a degree in political science. I was very, I paid attention to that sort of thing. Nobody fucking thought he was going to be president. I didn't think the country was ready for it. Nobody did. And I thought, okay, well, this isn't an issue for us. So. By the, um, that was Boxing John making a cameo. <laughs> um, by the time our record was finished and ready to come out, it was only three months before the election. And at the time, MySpace was your main platform for bands. And we even posted a thing on MySpace like, hey, we dig this guy. Uh, we don't support any candidate in particular, but there's a chance he could win should we change our name? And everybody said, absolutely not. It's one of the coolest fucking punk rock names ever. Keep it. And he won. And it's, it's kind of weird. It's not, you know, when your punk band is a, uh, the name of your punk rock band is a, is a sort of endorsement of the status quo. It's not exactly punk anymore. Is that how it was received? Or is that how you thought um, it would go over? It, most people still thought it was really cool. Most people really liked it. The problem was uh, every fucking interview started with, so, are you named after Brock? You know, so that got fucking annoying. And uh, a couple of, like, punker than thou magazines and shit uh, shit on us. But they were going to anyway. You know what I mean? So, Well, because you have to be anti-government to be a punk band, right? Well, so that no, they, just, they were just like, well, fucking, we have a black president now. Why don't you change your name? I'm like, why don't you change your fucking name? You know what I mean? There's a lot of Freds in the world. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So, but those people will never be happy. You know what I mean? So I, we just didn't really give a shit. And the reason Black President broke up is because, well, there was myriad fucking reasons. 
there was personal shit going on within within the band, but also like I just didn't have the same. I wrote all the songs. Um, Hetson and Christian had kicked in a couple of riffs here and there, but I wrote all the lyrics, and I had. I didn't have after. Barack was elected I didn't have that because there was an actual feeling of hope in the country do you know what I mean and I didn't have that white hot fucking rage that inspired me to write all those songs in the beginning and you know we were writing actually a lot of music on the road um, we'd written a bunch of songs but I just found that when it came time to me for, to write lyrics and melodies I just you weren't pissed off I was I, I, you know things were still fucked up Clearly, what about we, now? Well, yeah, I was going to say, what about ended. now? But they were kind of a different kind of fucked, and it was more sort of all over the map, and it was just, you know, it was it, it was really hard to get a lyric, a voice, you know, uh, behind it. Do you know what I mean? Because we were called Black President, yet we write protest music, and the whole thing was just sort of confusing. Yeah. And I guess from the press point of view, because I know what they're like, they're like, how can we, well, and the business side, how can we market this? How yeah. can we push it? How can we cover it? What is it? Where yeah. do we place it? Sure. Yeah. So th- there was there was a lot of different uh, obstacles. And not only that, like... Um, I'm just going to check the time real quick, just yeah. to see if I'm not due on stage just yet. Yeah, I think we've got about five or ten more minutes, if that's yeah. cool with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, there, you know, there were other things like... Um, uh, Christian had just had a kid, you know, clearly, you know, he had to su- provide for his fucking family and he had a really good job at home. And he just, he and I, the last tour we did was over here with the bouncing souls, uh, Europe. And, uh, he and I had a talk before we came over here and we kind of agreed that this would, we were going to go out on this. And, uh, and the thing is, man, like we were all in our mid thirties at the time. And, we started this punk rock band for fun and against all odds we wrote an entire record we developed a fan base we got a fucking record deal we got the record out we toured all over the place like we beat the odds at every fucking turn and i you know he and i just sort of decided we should just fucking be proud of what we've accomplished instead of like trying to draw trying out. to force it into something that is not going to be fucking it's going to suck you know what I mean? We, we can walk away from this proud of what we've done. And that's what we did. You've had some really cool projects, man. Like, obviously, Goldfinger is what it is. But just mm-hmm. outside of that, there's been some amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, are you still inspired to write on your own now? Is that still part of your life? Not music. No? No. Um, but I, like I said, I've been writing, uh, screen I've been writing plays and- screenplays. And I, I write for the LA Weekly occasionally. And I'm, I'm always writing something. So, yeah. That 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 it's a necessary expression. I I think I'll always do that. What movies should people go check out or TV shows? Once upon a time in Hollywood, I have seen it five fucking times. I've been trying to drag everybody on this tour to go see it over yeah. here. Um, Tarantino is the greatest living filmmaker. I think he's clearly influential. There's no Guy Ritchie without fucking Tarantino. No, he's period. like a poor man's Tarantino. And I like <laughs> Guy Ritchie's films, yeah. but again. Um, but growing up in L.A., as much as it's part of my soul and as much as I love my city, that movie is a love letter to Los Angeles. And it's every time I've seen it, I take new people and I get to experience it through their eyes for the first time. And I get something new out of it every fucking time. So, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, go see that shit. Uh, Charlie, an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. The coffee helped. And uh, yeah, I wish we could talk about loads more, but I better get on stage. Maybe if you're back over in the UK at the time, we'll do a round two. 100%. And talk, or whenever I, you come over to the States. LA stories, man. Yeah. I live for that stuff. Yeah, like, for just sure. The, I've got a lot of those. I'll bet. Yeah. Thank you, All brother. break of dawn till one by one they were gone back at base bugs in the software flash the message something's out there floating in the summer sky 99 red balloons go boom. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.